Ramses the Great is the topic of today's episode. But before I dive in, welcome to another exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. I am your host, Petros Katupis, and today we are going to look into the life of Ramses II, the man we traditionally refer to as Ramses the Great. Although during his lifetime, he wouldn't have heard such a title, but imagine for a moment if he did, the Great. It comes with it power. And if you know Ramses like the ancient Egyptians close to him did, you'd probably know that such a title would have gone straight to his head. That title came after his reign and when his successors and later ancient Egyptians started to refer to him as the great ancestor, he left quite the legacy. Anyway, who was Ramses II? Well, he was the third pharaoh of the 19th dynasty during the New Kingdom period in Egypt. Uh, born around 1303 BCE, Ramses is uh, believed to have reigned between 1279 to 1213 BCE. That is 66 years, an amazingly long length of time to rule in the ancient world. He is the son of Seti I and father of Merneptah, the pharaoh made famous by the mention of a little-known nomadic peoples mentioned in one of his inscriptions, which reads, Israel his seed is not. Ramses lived to an impressive age of 90 years. Ramses rose to the throne at a young age. At the age of 14, he was appointed prince regent by his father, Seti I, and it is typically believed that he was appointed pharaoh in his uh, early 20s, sometime around the age of 24. Since childhood, Ramses was accustomed to living life on the battlefield. He followed his father and embarked on numerous campaigns in an effort to restore Egypt to its former glory and restore possession of previously held Egyptian territories. This effort will continue to follow him until the end of his life. What can I say? Ramses grew up in a military-focused family. During his reign, the Egyptian army is estimated to have totaled some 100,000 soldiers, the largest of its time, and for a long time afterward. That isn't all that surprising when you realize his military consisted of more than just native Egyptians. Archaeological evidence and ancient inscriptions have revealed that Canaanites, that is, ancient Semites, Nubians from the south to assorted Aegean men served the Egyptian military, and in some cases, the pharaoh's personal guard like the Sheridan, sometimes referred to as the uh, Shardana, and one of the well-known tribes that make up what the ancient Egyptians later called the Sea Peoples. We even find evidence on the Greek islands. For instance, in 2006, there was an extraordinary archaeological find from uh, a Greek palace located on the Greek island of Salamis. It was of a bronze scale belonging to a larger quilted piece of armor typically fitted for over the torso. The scale was stamped with the royal cartouche of Ramses II, which seems to imply one of two things. One, the ancient Mycenaean Greeks either served as part of the pharaoh's army, or two, through trade, uh, the Mycenaeans obtained ancient Egyptian armor. While both are uh, likely, the former seems to be the more plausible scenario. In order to understand the goals of the, uh, the dynasty in which Ramses ruled, 
one must go a bit back in time to the 18th dynasty and more specifically focus on the sixth pharaoh to have ruled it. The great pharaoh that ruled before Ramses was uh, Thutmose III, the stepson of the famous and almost erased from the historical record female pharaoh Hatshepsut. He was known for expanding Egypt's borders east into Canaan and south into Nubia. One of the best-known archaeological sites showcasing this expansion and Egyptian influence can be found at the site of Megiddo in what is today northern Israel. Megiddo is such a fascinating site. The ancient Hebrews referred to it as Har Megiddo, which the later Greeks transliterated it to Armageddon. Yes, the very same Armageddon spoken of in The End of Times. It is a physical location which lies at the crossroads of ancient trade routes and travel, a sort of urban hub where peoples and nations from all over the Near East either knew of or traveled to. By the way, the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago has a wonderful exhibit dedicated to their excavation of the site. And archaeologist slash professor slash historical author, Dr. Eric Klein wrote a magnificent book of the Oriental Institute's archaeological excavations of the site called Digging Up Armageddon. Where were we? Yes, under Egyptian occupation, though, and from as early as at least the 15th century BCE, the region saw a lot of Egyptian influence. There was a lot of outsourcing of both manufacturing and labor, too. Cheap labor. Think about it. From jewelry to small religious trinkets or household goods and more, these Egyptian-occupied Canaanite towns produced these products at fractions of the cost, and they were either exported to neighboring nations or imported back into Egypt. Today, most of us think outsourcing is a modern creation, but nope. It wasn't. Many who are listening right now may be surprised to hear this, but things from the ancient world are not as different as you'd think from today. For example, when I would take my wife to museums, I cannot tell you how many times we would walk past a display with mirrors, combs, beds, makeup, and perfume containers, board games, wigs, hair extensions, yes, hair extensions, and so much more. In many cases, a lot of this technology or these products are just reinvented. Look at the uh, ancient Minoans of Crete and Thera in the Aegean Sea of the Eastern Mediterranean. They had indoor toilets with plumbing made out of clay buried underground and redirecting the sewage out of the city. This was over 3,500 years ago. We do not give the ancients nearly the amount of credit that they deserve. Anyway, I have digressed too much here. We need to get back to the topic of Ramses. Yes, Ramses needed to live up to his father's, you know, Seti I's legacy and restore Egypt's borders to what they were during the reign of Thutmose III. He had big shoes to fill. Well, maybe not literally, because I, I obviously do not know their shoe size. Yes, yes, <laughs> a dad joke. What would define Ramses, though, is his second campaign into Canaan, and more specifically Syria. We're talking about the fifth year as Pharaoh, or as I'd like to say, in office. If you know a thing or two about Ramses the Great, you would know or have likely heard about his infamous Battle of Kadesh. 
This is the most told story about Ramses ever. You cannot go anywhere in Egypt where there isn't an inscription or carved relief or whatever without him mentioning this epic battle. But here's the thing. Was it epic or was there some sort of embellishment? Again, this was his second campaign into the region. The city of Kadesh lay at the border of the Egyptian empire. To the north ruled the Hittites, the very same Hittites I discussed in episode one of this podcast, who were in conflict with the Mycenaean Greeks to the west. The Hittites ruled most of Anatolia, which is Turkey today, and much of northern Syria. At this exact time, Kadesh was under Hittite rule, but being as ambitious, young, and arrogant as he was, Ramses was not happy with that and decided to extend Egyptian borders further north to reclaim the Amuru lands. Amuru was an ethnic identity for the Semites living in the region. We're talking about the nomadic Amorites of uh, modern scholarship who migrated west into this region from the Transjordan and settled during the Middle Bronze Age period. Ramses needed this victory. He was desperate to emulate his father, Seti I, and return to Egypt as a triumphant hero. To reclaim Kadesh specifically, Seti did just that, although by the time of his death, Kadesh would fall back to the, uh, the Hittites. This must have been quite a blow to the morale of the Egyptians. If in your lifetime, your nation regains once Egyptian-controlled territory just to lose it again, you'd feel pretty darn upset about it. During this time, though, Ramses constructed Egypt's new capital of Pi Ramesses, or House of Ramses, per being the Egyptian word for house, in the delta region of Lower Egypt, that is, Northern Egypt. To the north was Lower Egypt, and to the south was Upper Egypt. This confusion was the result of the, the flow of the Nile River, which traveled from south to north. The location of Pi Ramses was uh, extremely close to the old Hyksos capital of Avaris. From his new capital and base, the Egyptians began to prepare for war with a very formidable foe. Again, the Hittites, led by their king, Muvatalis. Factories were set up to manufacture thousands of weapons and shields and hundreds of chariots. Then the time came. Ramses led his forces into the Levant and north up into Syrian territory. So here we are. Day nine of the third month of the summer season in the fifth year of his reign. We're talking about late May now. The pharaoh awoke in his tent just south of Kadesh and encamped among the troops of the senior corps of Amun. The rest of the Egyptian army was about one day's march away from Kadesh. At least that is how the poem begins. His poem, as he tells his side of the story. Kadesh lay just on the other side of the Orontes River. Fording this river would be quite the challenge, especially when you're doing it with hundreds of chariots and thousands of soldiers. But it happened, and just after they reached the other side of the Orontes, the Egyptian army encountered two Shasu Bedouin, which unfortunately provided the pharaoh with false intel on the location of the Hittite army. They claimed that they were nowhere near Kadesh. This was an intentional sabotage, but the Egyptians believed the information, and the pharaoh was all too eager to race to the city and position his forces accordingly to recapture the land. Again, Ramses was young, 
and his ego, well, got the best of him. I remember when I was in my 20s, I thought that nothing could stop me from conquering the world. Well, maybe not that extreme, but if you were ruler of a vast Egyptian empire, maybe you'd think exactly like that. Ramses had a choice here. He could wait for the Egyptian army a day away, or he could march off with what he had to Kadesh. Well, of course, this ruse led the pharaoh to lower his guard and hastily speed to the plains of Kadesh, where, after questioning two Hittite scouts, he was immediately ambushed by the Hittite army and forced to engage in battle. Messengers were sent to speed up the travel time of uh, the distant army and also request for help from nearby Egyptian-controlled vassal states. Things looked grim for the pharaoh. He did not believe that he was going to make it out alive. I'm not going to narrate the entire battle here, but I will say this. The pharaoh got lucky. The Egyptians were being battered on all fronts. This could have been the end for the pharaoh himself. Wave after wave of Hittite assault weakened their position until the appearance of a group of soldiers referred to as the Nerin from the uh, land of Amor. They came to save the day and the butts of the Egyptians. They were an Egyptian unit of Semitic origin, as the word Nerin was a Semitic word translating to young men. You can find depictions of these Nerin driving Egyptian-style chariots in one of Ramses' uh, retellings at Luxor. Needless to say, the Hittites were surprised by their appearance and a bit caught off guard. Up until this point, they thought they had the Egyptians right where they wanted them. It didn't matter, though. The Hittites technically still came out the victors, although it may not have felt like it. Both sides suffered many casualties, and that was without the full Egyptian army at the pharaoh's command. Possibly understanding this, the Hittite monarch decided to offer Ramses a truce. This wasn't a concession by the Hittites, but likely a strategy. Muvatalis had nothing to gain and much to lose by continuing the fight. Once the truce was accepted, the Egyptians marched back home with the Hittites tailing them to make sure they withdrew from the land. The Egyptians were humiliated. News spread fast in the, the land of Canaan and the Egyptian-controlled territory revolted. Ramses the Great spent many years afterwards reimposing Egyptian rule in both Canaan and Syria. Here is the thing, though. That is the story we know, but not the story told to the Egyptians. We know this primarily from the discovery of a treaty describing this exact battle, but the one told from the Hittite perspective. The treaty dates to some 15 years after the battle and is written between Ramses and the successor to Muvatalis, Hattusili III. After reaching back home, the story's ending was altered. Remember, Ramses needed this victory. And as long as he looked victorious to those he ruled, then that was good enough. So that was how it happened. The pharaoh crushed his enemies. Images at sites like Abu Simbel showcase the pharaoh on his chariot and shooting arrows at his fleeing enemies while they are also being taken prisoner. You can call this early fake news pure propaganda and embellishment. He needed to prove to the Egyptians and the neighboring nations that not only was he a great ruler or as great as Thutmose III and Seti I before him, but even greater. It is your typical strong man ruler. It kind of worked though. 
Sure, Egyptian-occupied territories needed a bit of a reminder of Egypt's might, but for the most part, the latter half of Ramses' reign was marked by peace. Well, let me clarify. Peace at the borders. Just like any other beloved pharaoh that came before and after, Ramses ruled his people by force when necessary. He would not have hesitated to make an example out of someone who opposes authority, even with his own. And that is something you do not read in the history books. We just spoke about his narrow escape at the Battle of Kadesh. Fearing for their lives, there were moments when his soldiers were beginning to abandon him on the battlefield. And while the battle was waging, the Hittites were watching Ramses essentially sentencing his own soldiers to a death sentence. Call it psychological warfare, but this act alone could have been yet another reason why King Muvatalis of the Hittites hastened to a truce. There is another topic I wish to touch on when it comes to Ramses the Great, the biblical exodus. For over a century, it has been believed that Ramses is the unnamed Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, the same Pharaoh that prevented Moses and the Israelites from departing the land of Egypt and traveling east toward the promised land. Sure, we have clues such as the mention of Ramses' capital, Pi Ramesses, in the book of Exodus, and maybe a couple of other smaller clues. But is that enough to confidently say that he is the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Unfortunately, no. Besides, we do not find evidence in the Egyptian archaeological record or in the Sinai to prove or disprove the claim. That is not to say that it didn't happen. It just means that there is a big question mark next to his name. One thing worth noting, though, is that yes, Ramses ruled from his capital in the Nile Delta region. This area was open to the east and the Levant, where Canaanites were constantly migrating in and out, either as merchants or hired mercenaries or just looking for a good living, often with their families. Semites populated the Delta region and in many cases directly served the pharaoh. What immediately comes to mind is the 2018 discovery of the tomb of one of his great army generals, Iriki, at the necropolis of Saqqara. Here is the best part. Iriki was not a native Egyptian. He was a Semite whose family likely originated from the land of Canaan. Canaanites, again, were all over northern Egypt, since at least the Middle Kingdom, if not before, during the first intermediate period nearly a thousand years earlier. And to assume that they were subjected to hard labor as slaves does not reflect the archaeology. Anyway, the Exodus is a topic which I will return to in a future episode. At the time of his death, Ramses was 90 years old. This was unheard of 3,200 years ago, although he was not without health issues. We're talking about dental problems, arthritis, and something called the hardening of the arteries. After he was mummified, he was buried in tomb KV-7 in the Valley of the Kings, which is located on the west side of the Nile River near the ancient city of Thebes by modern-day Luxor. This was the common royal necropolis of the Egyptian New Kingdom period. It is the same location in which the infamous pharaoh Tutankhamun was buried. By the way, this month marks the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of King Tut. How amazing is that? Even though he was buried in his own tomb, because of looters and tomb robbers, later priests rewrapped the pharaoh and placed his body in another tomb. Today, you can find his mummy on display at the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization in Cairo, Egypt. I touched on this earlier. 
you cannot walk outside in Egypt and not see the Pharaoh in some form. Inscriptions, monuments, temples, carvings, and statues. In some cases, he would reuse or borrow the statues of his predecessors by carving his royal cartouche on them. The whole of Egypt knew the name Ramses. He was the great war hero, the great peacekeeper, extending and preserving Egyptian borders. His enemies feared him. He was the great builder. He was loved by the gods and in turn was deified himself. All who followed Ramses II were desperate to emulate him. This is why another nine rulers named Ramses came after him. What an ego, right? And here we are at the end of yet another episode of Digging Up the Past. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off.